Good morning, class. We are this morning on the sixth and last lesson in relation to Jerusalem, uh, God's beloved city. This is also in the prophetical phase. And this morning, these aspects that we would like to talk about, uh, revealed in relation to Jerusalem by the deity, are related, uh, are other things that are related other than the, are related to the life of the woman, but which are not covered in the figure, but they still are very important to every child of God. We uh, find at this time that Jerusalem is still desolate, that the present state of Israel is not associated with the kingdom of God. It is still a nation of stiff-necked, rebellious people ruled over by scribe and Pharisee-type rulers whose trust is in their own might and ability. Now, this condition the deity reveals must change before the put-away wife can return. The freeing of the shackles of the Gentiles is only a temporary release, and before the glorious return of the woman, Jerusalem once more will feel the wrath of the irate husband as he uses the Gentile nations to prepare her for her return. Her beauty will still attract her former heathen lovers, and they shall descend upon her to partake of her beauty. The prophet Ezekiel speaks of a great confederation of nations under the leadership of God, who shall think an evil thought, and shall say, I will go up to the land of unwalled villages, I will go to them that are at rest, that dwell safely, all of them dwelling without walls, and having neither bars nor gates, to take a spoil and to take a prey, to turn thine hand upon the desolate places that are now inhabited, and upon the people that are gathered out of all the nations, which have gotten cattle and goods that dwell in the midst of the land. That is Ezekiel 38, 11, and the 12th verse. Habakkuk says in chapter 3, verse 14, they came out of out as a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was as to devour the poor secretly. So that after being challenged by Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish with all the young lions thereof, he pours in upon the land of Israel like a flood, or as Ezekiel expresses it, he ascends and comes like a storm, like a cloud to cover the land. I'm not going to be dogmatic on this point. Neither am I going to dis disagree wholeheartedly with Dr. Thomas. But Dr. Thomas, I believe everyone realizes that Sheba and Dedan uh, is represented by England and the uh, merchants of Tarshish with all the young lions thereof. It seems as though that several of those thoughts in relation to Dr. Thomas uh, have been proven to be poorly uh, identified. He still might be right. But using the scriptures as our type 
of understanding or as a basis for our understanding and using the example that we have when it says from Dan to Beersheba usually means that that takes in the whole land of Israel. Dan being at the top and Beersheba being at the bottom. So that when we express it from Dan to Beersheba, we are expressing the whole land of Israel. Now using that same, I don't know whether this is inductive or deductive or whatever reasoning, uh, however, using the same type of reasoning, Sheba and Dedan were both in Arabia. And one, they're not, uh, there's a question as to where they are located, but on one of the maps, it shows, uh, I believe, Dedan is in the north and Sheba in the south. I should have checked that before I made that statement, but Dedan is, is in the north or in the northwestern section and Sheba is in the south, southwestern. What is from one extremity to the other due to the peculiarity of the shape of the land. So that if that reasoning is correct, this would seem to indicate that this is the whole land of Arabia and that the merchants of these, uh, of Tarshish, along with the young lions thereof, would be those of whom are with the Arabian power. Maybe I'm trying to rationalize, maybe not. I do not think so, and I hope not. But it seems as though <clears throat> the way that the setup is there now, with the Arabs trying to uh, ascend to power and to combine together, that it is much more logical, and the Arabs also being in the city, it's much more logical to believe that the challenge shall go out under the Arabic flag or Arabic flag rather than under the British flag. I'm not in any sense of the world saying that the United States and the British influence will not be there. But what I am trying to put forth as a thought here that the uh, the challenge that goes out would go out under the government of the Arabic nations rather than under the British power. And I'm also adding at this time that the, the scriptures definitely make a difference or spell out very clearly as to who the Arabic powers are and that the eight Arabic nations of which we have today, of which Iran, Syria, and Egypt are included in there from a scriptural standpoint or from a deity standpoint are definitely not included as, as part of the Arabs. Those Iran and Egypt belong in the Daniel phase of the king of the north and the king of the south, and they have nothing to do with the Arabs. That the 83rd Psalm, I believe it is, is the one of which more or less defines as to who the Arabic nations are. These are the enemies of the Lord. These are the ones that wanted to annihilate God's people. I believe it's the 83rd Psalm. <clears throat> I'm just... Uh, giving you that for something to think about. He sends like, <clears throat> sends and comes like a storm, like a cloud to cover the, <clears throat> the land. 
with the exception of Edom, Moab, and the chief of the children of Ammon, which escaped the storm. That's Daniel 11.41. So that in pitching the tents of his entrenched camp between the seas and the glorious holy mountain, Daniel 11.45, he shall besiege Jerusalem, and to do this he must occupy the valley of Jehoshaphat or the valley of the Kaiser. You remember we mentioned earlier that the valley over here is of the Kidron, but there was also another name that was given to it, the Valley of Jehoshaphat, although uh, there was no per actual name given that. It was a tradition, or it's set in there simply because of the scriptures. And it was put in there by God for a definite reason. <clears throat> the um, Of this valley... Joel says in the third chapter, the second and the twelfth verse, that the Lord will gather all nations into the valley of Jehoshaphat and will plead with them there. Now, Jehoshaphat in Hebrew signifies the judgment of Yah. So Joel, Joel also styles it the valley of, thre of threshing. As he says, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision or threshing, as the marginal reference gives it. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of threshing. That's verse 14. It, it is the same place as is styled in Armageddon as Armageddon in Revelation. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. That's Revelation 16, 16. He will gather them together without their perceiving the hand that led them to the slaughter. He says in Zechariah 14, 2, I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. Brother Thomas wrote in connection with this name, Jehoshaphat, or the Valley of Jehoshaphat, he wrote thusly, Various derivations have been given of the mystical name. For such it is, inasmuch as there is no such name of a place in the land of Israel. Micah says, Yahweh shall gather many nations as sheaves under the floor, that the daughter of Zion may arise and thresh, thresh them. That's, that's the fourth chapter, 11th to 13th verse. The floor of threshing, of which they are to be made the chaff, that's Daniel, Daniel 2.35, is this valley of Jehoshaphat. And under this aspect of things, <clears throat> they are a heap of sheaves upon the threshing floor. And this idea is represented by the word Arma, A-R-M-A, the first two syllables of the name. The third uh, guy, G-A-I, indicates where this heap is to be, namely, in the valley. And the last syllable, Don, D-O-N, for what purpose the heap is there, namely, for judgment, or Ama Gai Don. The reason why the text states that the place or valley... Uh, the reason why the text states that the valley, place of valley is Hebraicistically so-called is to give us to understand in what country the place is situated, in the country to wit, 
the native language of which is the Hebrew tongue. That's unquote. Now, those are Brother Thomas's words. And when you break it down from that standpoint, you can see that when Jerusalem is compassed about with army, that the Lord has brought them there for the main purpose of causing his judgment to be poured out upon them, and that this is the valley of decision, the valley of threshing, and there he will thresh the nations. It fits in with the rest of Scripture. That the city will be captured then, there is no doubt. For Zechariah says, the city shall be taken and the houses rifled and the women ravished. And half of the city shall go forth into captivity and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from this city. That's Zechariah 14.2. But he continues, then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. That's verse 3, Zechariah. He shall go forth with whirlwind of the south, or, as was pointed out in one of the classes or discussions here, whirlwind of the south or teeming as the margin gives it, in Habakkuk 3.3. 3. He will march through the land in indignation, that's Habakkuk 3.12, and tread down the people in his anger at Basra, and make them drunk in his fury, and bring down their strength to the earth. That's Isaiah 63, 6. All the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at his presence. That's Ezekiel 38, 20. And his feet at that time shall stand upon the Mount of Olives, which shall cleave in twain. That's Zechariah 14, 4. And he will plead against Gog with pestilence and with blood and rain upon him and upon his bands and upon the many people with him, an overflowing rain and great hailstone, fire and brimstone. That's Ezekiel 38, 22. Thus shall Jerusalem and the Holy Land be delivered from the kings of the earth and of the whole habitable. That's <clears throat> Revelation 16, 4, or confederate with God. They will fall upon the mountains of Israel and upon the open field, and a sixth part of them only will escape. That's Ezekiel 38, the second verse, fourth verse, and the fifth verse. I think it is in place here to mention that this power that is to do this is the king of the south. It's the final king of the south. Sometimes when we first come in contact uh, with these names, we immediately think uh, of one person as being in the king of the north and one person being the king of the south. We have always heard that Russia will be the king of the north and that the southern power, probably Egypt, would be, or Britain, it was Britain as far as Dr. Thomas was concerned. The emphasis was on uh, Russia as the king of the north and Britain as the king of the south. But when you come to realize that this is descriptive of the relation in relation uh, in connection with the city, Jerusalem, or the Holy Land, it means the power north of the city or the land, and it means the power south of the land. So that 
If anyone asks you who the king of the north is, or who the king of the south is, you really should ask them, at what period are you talking about? Because at certain times, at different periods, uh, different people held those same areas. Egypt has definitely been the king of the south, as well as Britain. Britain could be termed the king of the south as long as she was in there, but as now that she is out of there, and has been out of there since the uh, establishment of Israel, Britain cannot be termed the king of the south. In the finality, at this period of which we're talking here about now, Jesus and his brethren, the multitudinous Christ, after they have come down from Mount Sinai, is the final king of the south. I just put that forth as a thought. <clears throat> and he still wars with the king of the north or the great confederation of powers that come down, and therefore there is no confliction in scriptures. But I, I wonder sometime whether we appreciate that Jesus, uh, on his second return, after his brethren have been added to him, or been the judgment has taken place, and the body has come together, the multitudinous body, that Jesus holds the final king of the south uh, title. <clears throat> Thus all the heathen will see the judgment executed upon them, and the house of Israel will know that Yahweh is the Lord their God from that day and forward. Ezekiel 39, 22. Therefore, sing, O daughter of Zion, Shout, O Israel, be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord hath taken away thy judgments, he hath cast out thine enemy. The King of Israel, even the Lord, is in the midst of thee. Thou shalt not see evil any more. Zephaniah 3, 14 and 15. And then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her any more. That's Joel 3, 17. Now here again is another point of which uh, we would like to put forth to clarify some of the things of which we've heard over the period. And that is, they appreciate that there possibly will be two uh, phases of the final conflict. The one with the great confederation of nations under the Gogian head, of which will be destroyed on the mountains of Israel. And then after the kingdom is established and the uh, religious phase is set up, they feel, or you hear them talking in terms of the uh, Catholic power coming down against Jerusalem and fighting against it. I believe very strongly that that is not the case, it is not scriptural, and I believe that this is one of the thoughts right here. And there shall no strangers pass through her anymore. When Jerusalem is holy, or when the land is cleansed, when it is sanctified, that no strangers or no uncleanness shall come into that land again. And it is in the thought then, which uh, the scriptures seem to substantiate, that once that the land is cleansed and the son of David, the greatest son of David, has established himself in Jerusalem, the uh, kingdom is reestablished, the war then goes out from Jerusalem and covers the rest of the nations or the rest of the world. But under no circumstances, at that period, once the Gogian uh, army has 
been destroyed and the land's cleansed. And the 39th of Ezekiel goes into quite some detail to, to tell us that what will happen, that they shall go through the land looking for the dead bodies and uh, cleansing the land, getting all this contamination out of it, that there certainly will not be any uncleanness uh, come back into that land at that particular time. We will not uh, argue the point that at the end of the thousand years that the camp shall come up against the, the camp of the saints again. But at this particular time, once the land is cleansed, uh, it shall not be desecrated again. <clears throat> now, before the house of Israel knows that Yahweh is the Lord their God, the prediction of Ezekiel 43.2, that the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east, and his voice was like the noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory, will be fulfilled. His mission is to establish God's throne in Jerusalem. That as the Spirit has testified by Jeremiah in the third chapter, 17th verse, they shall call Jerusalem the throne of the Lord. Jesus' ascent from the Mount of Olives brings us to the fulfillment of the 24th Psalm, which speaks of his entry into the city. Again, I'm just going to inject a thought here simply because I heard something in the conversation around here that it seems to think that Jesus will come back to the Mount of Olives from where he left, or roughly the area where he left. That apparently is not scriptural. He comes to the Sinai Peninsula because he has much work to be done before he ever reaches the Mount of Olives. In fact, before he reaches the Mount of Olives, the threshing of the nations has already been taken care of. He now stands on the east side of the city of Jerusalem, over in this area here, about to make ready his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. <clears throat> so that he definitely does not first come back to the Mount of Olives. We say that because... When he comes, he's coming in the, the greatness of his strength, and the greatness of his strength is his brethren, and that there is work to be done to uh, establish those brethren through the judgment before he ever comes there. And one of the thoughts in relation to that is that Sinai being barren down there, that uh, civilization is not there as a whole, it is a very excellent place to carry this out without the the world knowing it, because one of the thoughts that Dr. Thomas puts forth is that when this power operates, comes down from Mount Sinai and operates in this southern hemisphere uh, against this great confederation of nations, it, they are aware that it is a mighty power, <clears throat> but they are not aware as to who it represents or who it is. And they will not know who it is until they know uh, by the judgment being passed out upon them. It's a mysterious group operating. They're fully aware that he's there, but they are not fully aware as to who he is or what he represents. So that uh, it brings us then to the 24th Psalm, which speaks of his entry into the city. The gates of the city before him are closed. He had said to them in the days of his flesh, Ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he who cometh in the name of the Lord. That's Matthew 23, 39. 
and that that moment has now arrived. And he stands, he sends his heralds or his message to demand admission into the city or to demand admission to the city for the king of glory. Approaching the gates then, they exclaim in the 24th Psalm and the 7th verse, Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, for the king of glory shall come in. But they not knowing who he is, they inquire from within the city, verse 8, Who is this king of glory? To which his heralds reply, verse 8 also, and 9, The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, for the king of glory shall come in. But the guardians of the gates still hesitate, and they repeat the inquiry in verse 10, Who is this king of glory? And they are further informed that the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. We hear and read in the scriptures of the Lord of hosts, and that Lord of hosts is the army of the Lord, of the everlasting God. That great army of which every one of the children of God belong to. We are not peaceful in any sense of the word. We do not fight, but we're not peaceful. It isn't in our position that we hold that we do not believe in war, that we do not believe in putting on a uniform, that we do not believe in having a banner or a flag for our cause. Because every one of those things that the world has, we have. And we belong, or we are a part, of the greatest force that can be assembled. We're part of that army of which David spoke, that he came in the name of the Lord. It is a mighty army, and Joel in there tells you, uh, to a certain, quite an extent, as to what it is like. If we thought in terms of the panzer divisions in the Second World War, when the Germans just steamrolled over everything else, you get some small idea of what the power is in this army. Because here, nothing touches them. They are immortal, and they just move forward, uh, mowing down or cutting down everything that gets in their place. So if anybody would like to, to have the uniform, such as sometimes it befalls people that their pride and their uh, desire for attention wants them to put on the uniform, let them just remember that they have a uniform on and that it is one of the greatest uniforms that they could ever have. This conference at the gates of Jerusalem then will doubtless result in the opening wide the gates of the city. Then the strong and mighty one, attended by his multitude, will descend from Mount Olives, the Mount of Olives, and enter the gates of Zion amidst the rejoicing of the people, crying, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. That's Matthew 21.9. How many times have we read that 
that we have done our daily reading, we've done it many times. At this time, the question will be asked by the elders of the city, what are these wounds in thy hands? To whom his reply will reveal him as the crucified Christ, the wounds with which I was wounded in the house of my friend. Zechariah 13, 6. Thus the king of the Jews proves his identity to his people, and like Joseph, he makes himself known to his brethren, according to the flesh, in his appearance before them the second time. And the result is similar also, for they look upon him whom they pierced and mourn because of him as one mourneth for his only son. In that day there shall be a great mourning in Jerusalem, as the mourning of Hadad Rimen in the valley of Megiddo, or in the valley of Armageddon. The one is in the Old Testament, the other is in the New, I mean the Greek and the Hebrew words. That's Zechariah 12, 10 and 11. This nation, or this national repentance, results in the salvation of the tents of Judah, whose sin and uncleanness is covered and cleansed. That's in the 12th chapter, the 7th verse, and the 13th chapter, the 1st of Zechariah. Here again, we have heard people discussing and saying how perplexed they are as to whether the 12 tribes are in the land of Israel at this time, or whether they will be there before Christ comes. The scripture definitely says that he should save the tents of Judah first. And we believe that one of the helps along the way was the part of our earlier uh, lesson here when we talked about the covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And in the ending up of that 16th chapter of Ezekiel, you remember it's said that it was not by her covenant that he would remember her, but it was by the new covenant, the everlasting covenant. And at the same time, he also mentioned that her sisters no longer were considered sisters, but they were considered daughters. And that the new covenant then was made with the house of Judah only. That the ten tribes are not in under that uh, covenant, in the sense of being a part of it, they will be partakers of it, but they are not a part of it. And that here, to us, substantiates this thought of the tents of Judah first. The covenant is made with the house of David, with the, uh, with the tribe of, of Judah, and of course Benjamin happens to be uh, part of the power of Judah. That the power, regardless of how many people are in Jerusalem today that can find their identity back to another tribe other than the three tribes, the uh, tribe of Judah, the tribe of Benjamin, and the tribe of Levi, we're talking in terms of covenant relationship, we're talking in terms of powers, and that the power of the ten tribes went into captivity and never came out. The tribe of Judah went into captivity for wickedness also, but it did come out. And putting all these things together, we think it is quite conclusive 
that what is represented in Jerusalem today is the two tribes only and will only be such until after Christ comes, establishes the throne in this area where the seat throne of David was, and then is the work to bring the rest of the 12 tribes, uh, the other 10 tribes, out of the nations and bring them down and plant them in this land. I think that we have a little thought around that in a, in a few minutes here. <clears throat> I offer that for consideration. Henceforth they rejoice in the son of David as their king. Such is the development in relation to Judah of the words in Revelation in 1.7 where it says, Behold, he come, cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him, even so, amen. With the triumphal entry into the literal Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem from heaven establishes itself by setting up the throne, again the throne of David. You remember we said that the uh, new Jerusalem was the redeemed. This is the ruling power of this city, the new ruling power. Every one of her heavenly constituents is a king and a priest of the deity. As it is stated in Revelation 26, they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And they shall see his face, his name shall be in the forest, and there shall be no night there, and they, they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. That's Revelation 22, 4 and 5. The darkness and the light are the same to them as is expressed in the Psalms 139, the 12th verse. For they are no longer flesh and blood or earthly bodies, but spirit, because they are born from above. Remember we spoke yesterday about the unnatural order of things, that how before Zion traveled, uh, she brought forth a child, brought forth a nation, at once, <clears throat> in one day. Hence, there can be no night to them, for they will be the cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night, created by the Spirit upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon assemblies as foretold by the prophet Isaiah in the fourth chapter, the fifth verse. Again, there is a thought that immediately comes into our mind that after the children of Israel were brought out of Egypt and they were being led by God, you remember that he was a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by the day to protect them? It finds its fulfillment at this period. They are a new race of kings of the earth. Before the manifestation of the sons of God, the nation never beheld such rulers. Again, it's hard to understand what these people will be like because we can only talk in terms of what we are associated with. We're only associated with the mortal, and it's very hard to raise the mortal mind up into this position. The nations never beheld such rulers. They will be kings by the grace of God and ruling by divine right. They are the kings of the East created there 
by the rising of the sun of righteousness. Having then destroyed the old race of kings, them who destroy or corrupt, as the margin says, the earth in Revelation 11:18, the kingdoms of the world are transferred to the new and the holy Jerusalem. Her royal constituents become the kings of the earth, according to the promise of the spirits, saying, He that overcometh and keepeth my words unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, even as I received of my father. That's Revelation 2, 26 and 27. Their glory and honor, and the glory and honor of the nations they have acquired by conquest, become tributary to the new Jerusalem. For these new kings and the great and holy city are one and the same. They are Zion's kings, and their throne of empire is the architectural Jerusalem on Mount Zion where David reigned. That's the house of prayer for all people, as is being given in the third period here. With Jerusalem redeemed then, and the glorified saints enthroned within her walls of the kings of the earth, the Spirit's words spoken by Isaiah will have become a reality. The abundance of the sea shall be turned to her, and the wealth of the nation shall come unto her. Her gates shall be open continually, they shall not be shut day nor night, that they may bring unto her the wealth of the nations, and their kings may be brought. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve her shall perish. Her officers shall be peace, and her exactors righteousness. Her walls salvation, and her gates praise. Her sun shall no more go down, neither shall her moon withdraw herself. For the Lord, or Yahweh, shall be their everlasting light, and the days of her mourning shall be ended. Now that's the 66th chapter, I mean, the 60th chapter of Isaiah. It is taking it generally, uh, the thought of the 60th chapter. There is one more aspect in relation to Jerusalem which we believe is worthy of note. The prophet Ezekiel receiving instructions from the Lord how the land should be divided among the twelve tribes for their inheritance in the 48th, 29th verse of Ezekiel, 48th chapter 29, is told that a holy portion of the land shall be offered by the people for an oblation unto the Lord, that's in 45, one between the portions of Judah and Benjamin. Now, all we have done with this chart here is try to uh, bring out the division or the makeup of this holy oblation. <clears throat> They're between, it is between the divisions of Judah and Benjamin. Again, is that not significant that this covenant is with the house of Judah. It's between the two of them. The other tribes are not, they are around there, yes, but they're, this is centered right between the two tribes uh, where the covenant was made with, the new covenant was made with. The literal city of Jerusalem is in this holy oblation. We will just roughly go over the size of this. The whole oblation here, I haven't attempted to show the borders out here because I didn't think it was worth, uh, was really part of our study. 
All we're trying to do is show the relation of this to the city Jerusalem. So the Holy Oblation was 25,000 reeds square. The one portion is divided there. It says <coughs> the, uh, if you want some reference for that, the 25 reeds square is in the 48th chapter, the 8th verse, and also the 20th verse. This is of Ezekiel now we're talking about. And it's divided into three smaller oblations. And that the first oblation was 25,000 reeds times 10,000 reeds. That's 48, 9 to 10, and also the 45th chapter, the first verse. And it says that there that it is for the priest, the sanctified sons of Zadok. Notice that word sanctified, because it is very important. It sets the priest apart from one being separated from the other. These are the sanctified sons of Zadok, which is mentioned there in the 48th chapter, the 11th and the 12th verses. The second thought in relation to this first oblation is that the sanctuary of most holy is in the midst. That's 48.10 and 45.3. And it happens to be 500 reeds square with 50 cubits or reeds round about the suburbs, 45, this is chapter 45.2. The sanctuary, it says, is in the midst here. And according to our understanding of midst, I think it is the most of us would have put it right in the center here. We have a tendency to do that because of our understanding of myth. However, that brother Sully has a reason for not uh, accepting that thought, and I think that it is well uh, put forth. We'll mention that in just a moment. The, um, <clears throat> the next sublation then is another section that is of a similar size 25,000 reeds in the length and 10,000 here. And it says that this is for the Levites, ministers of the house of the Lord, who have, and this is the, the key point of it, who have 20 chambers of the temple for possession. That's in the uh, 45th chapter, the fifth verse. And Brother Sully's reasoning of that is, that the, south, the southern uh, outer court of the temple here has broken, is broken up into 20 chambers, and that those 20 chambers belong to the Levitical priest. And by placing it down here in the midst this way, uh, the people come up in this place. This is a sanctified area, and a sanctified area is not common to the ordinary person. So that if this was put up in here, if the people are to go up from year to year the way they are supposed to, to worship in the temple, the rank and file of the train or the common peace would be going through the sanctified area, which we do not believe is in harmony with the scripture. But the way that he has located it by just slightly in uh, the portion of the Levites, it means that the Levites, that are, although they're common themselves, they can live in here and still not be in the sanctified area, and at the same time it allows the common people or the nations of the world to come up here and not go in here. And you'll notice also that there is a suburb, or as one of the rendering gives it, a voice space uh, around the house of 50 cubits. This is so small here in relation to the rest of it that you just couldn't show 50 cubits. I put a question mark on cubits because 
If you make a cubit, it's, it's a very small uh, mount. It's about 73 feet. If you're using a 17 and a half of 0.6 inches for the cubit. Of course, 73 feet is quite a lot, but uh, when he's talking the reeds in here, it might be reeds. I'm not going to just argue that point. I do not know. However, even if it's, uh, if it's 50 reeds, it still is less than one mile using the um, Bible concordance uh, value of a reed as being 10 feet, 2.3 inches for the uh, reed. I know Brother Sully uses 12 feet. He might be right. I'm only using something that is put down in the scriptures so that we can get, uh, not exactly in the scriptures, but in the Bible concordance, to get some kind of a value to give you a, uh, the size or, or an idea of the size of it. <clears throat> so that the, the second part is for the Levites. These are the ministers of the house who have 20 chambers. Then the third part is the third oblation was 25,000 times 5. 25 again times 5. That's in uh, 48th chapter, the 15th verse, 45 and 6. And it says here that this was for the possession of the city. And it's for the whole house of Israel. 45, 6. Now we've got... Uh, the immortal priest taken care of, we've got the immortal priest taken care of, and we have the 12 tribes of Israel uh, encamped around this uh, holy oblation. And it is only logical that someplace in the holy oblation that the house of Israel should be represented. So that this possession of the city here is for the whole house of Israel, as it says. It's also, that's in 45.6, it's also called a profane place for the city, for dwelling and for suburbs, 48.15. It says that the city is in the midst, 48.15, and that that city is 4,500 reeds square, that's 48.16, with 250 reeds roundabout for suburbs, that's 48.17. The city is in the midst, right in here, with a suburb around it. There is the literal, to my understanding, the literal city of Jerusalem at that time. Here is the spiritual. But inasmuch as God's purpose is in the place where he uh, made the covenant with David, it is up here on Mount Zion. This can be quite a distance from Mount Zion. However, it is all in the uh, sanctified, or the, not the sanctified, but the holy oblation area. <clears throat> and that the, the third part then, it says the residue on both sides of the city, or the 10,000 reeds either, that remain either side here, are full, so that uh, when the people come up, uh, this is the hotel area to take care of these people that come up from time to time. <clears throat> it's food for those who serve the city, 48.18, and those that serve shall be, it says, from all tribes of Israel. Yea, Israel shall be represented here. It is not given to one tribe only. All tribes, uh, the remaining tribes, will part participate in it. We then have what we call the fourth oblation. I don't know whether that's exactly 
the correct terminology. However, it is part of the land of which was to be offered unto uh, God. And that's the residue from the east over to here, from the eastern border over here, and from the here to the western border. That is for the prince. And that's in the 48th chapter, uh, 21 to 22, and 45, 7. So that if we use the Bible concordance value of 10 feet, 2.3 uh, inches for the length of a reed, and the early cubit of 17.6 inches, we have the following measurements. That the 25,000 reed would be roughly 48 miles. That this would be 48, this would be 48. That's quite an area, quite an area. And that you take the portion for the uh, priests, the sons of Zadok, roughly 19 or between 19 and 20 miles would be their area. That would be 19 and 20 <coughs> miles there. And then the remainder would be roughly almost 10 miles. So it is quite an area. Uh, 200, 500 reeds then is less than a mile. Brother Sully says it's roughly one mile square. And if you use this uh, figure here, it comes out 0.97 miles, which is very close to, to one mile. I think we wouldn't argue that those values were off too much. The 250 reeds then would be practically a half a mile, and 50 reeds would be uh, one-tenth of a mile. So you, and if you get 50 cubits, you get down to 73 feet, which is not very much in a great area like this. So that then we'll finish up our lesson that these are some of the glorious things that are spoken, Jerusalem of thee. They all center in the fulfillment of the covenant that God made with his two servants, Abraham and David. The earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That's Habakkuk 2.14. All nations shall be blessed and David's house shall be established forever. Remember, we brought this now from the uh, undeveloped land over to a point now where we have the two cities, the literal and the spiritual, represented. That is not the fulfillment of God's purpose with the earth. Mortality is still represented here. It has to be shown in this oblation uh, in some way, as we pointed out, because Mortality is still present, and it has to be represented there to being taken care of. But the ultimate purpose with God with the earth is when the last enemy to be overcome is death, is done away with. And what is left is what is represented in Jerusalem. And I <clears throat> do not think that we could do any better than to sum it up as Brother Thomas does in the third volume of Eureka. They are pages six. 183 to 84 in the old chapter, the old books. I have to say that because the new books have been tampered with and you will not find them if we quote the pages without mentioning it. He says then, when the sea of nations is made a full end of, but one nation remains the eternal occupant of the earth, remember the words of Jeremiah, though I make an all, a full end of all of the nations, I will not make a full end of thee. This is the fulfillment of it. And that when that day arises, all the other nations have disappeared. There is only one nation left, and that's the nation of Israel, 
or the kingdom of God. Flesh and blood having been abolished in the destruction of the last enemy, death, that one nation must be a nation of immortals. It continues eternally a body politic under the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ and the saints. For the promise concerning him is, he shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest, and Yahweh Elohim shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. That's Luke 1, 32 and 33. David understood the promise made to him as well as to Mary in this sense. For Yahweh said to him, I will make his throne as the days of heaven. His throne shall endure as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon and as a faithful witness in the heaven. That's Psalm 89, 29, 36, and 37. Hence, the body politic will be an everlasting Israelitish kingdom, all the subjects of which will be incorruptible and deathless. And his kings and princes, the glorious immortals who had already twice conquered the world and between their conquests ruled it for a thousand years. But in view of this, what becomes of Paul saying in 1 Corinthians 15, 24? Then cometh the end when Christ shall have delivered up the kingdom to the deity, even the Father. There is no contradiction between Paul and Gabriel and David. The delivering up is in the sense of that of subjection or subordination to the Father, implied in the abolition of mediatorship. Hitherto, no one could have access to the Father but through the Son. For the Father judges no man, but hath committed all judgment to the Son, because he is the Son of Man. But when the sea is no more, when there ceases to be men of flesh and blood upon the earth, this reason ceases to have any force. The Father resumes his position of direct relation to all, seeing that he is then the all things in all, the dwellers upon earth who are spirit or consubstantial with himself. The delivering up is the change of the constitution of things made necessary by the destruction of the devil and his works or the destruction of sin's flesh and all pertaining to it. If there had been no sin, there would have been no mediatorship. Man could always have stood naked in the presence of his maker without being ashamed. But when the sea is no more, the breach between the deity and man is thoroughly and completely repaired, and the kingdom is placed under a new constitution, or heaven and earth, suited to the altered condition of the world. There being no more judgments to execute, nor gifts and sacrifices to offer for ignorant and erring mortals, the high priesthood of the Melchizedek order is vacated, and the priestly office of the saints abolished, while preeminence of rank is continued to them and the captain of their salvation as long as the sun and the moon endure. Then shall that's the end of Dr. Thomas's summary. Then shall Jerusalem be truly the city of peace, for the name of the city from that day shall be Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there, Ezekiel 48, 35. That ends our study on Jerusalem, God's beloved city. 
And I want to say that I thank you very much. I've enjoyed being here, and I hope that you have got something out of it. Thank you. Brother Roth, on behalf of all of us who have enjoyed this week with you, we would like to thank you personally for the work you have done. You have given us a thrilling picture of Jerusalem from her beginning to her end, from the time there was no city to the time that it lasts forever. We thank you for your work that you've done. It's been good to be here.